0: In the mid-19th century, Europe and the world was seeing the growth of a kind of reductive scientific rationalism, which caused many people to doubt the Christian faith. This pseudo-rationalism, or scientism as it might be called, suggests that only those things which can be demonstrated scientifically have any truth value. Now, it should be obvious to anyone that this kind of claim, rather than advancing the legitimate cause of reason and science, actually hinders it. Because only a relatively small range of human concerns can be dealt with as matters of demonstrative evidence. To explore many other things, such as morality, art, literature, history, or politics, requires metaphysics. To show us the nature of man and the nature of the world in a way that is not derivable from simple scientific observation. This is why In our modern times, people often invoke the mantle of science and reason while acting in the most absurd and irrational of ways. Look at the last 200 years in which our world has become increasingly secular and non-Christian. Can anyone with a straight face claim that we are seeing a public culture imbued with increasing rationality? Just flip through the channels on television sometime. Does it seem that more science and less faith has been able to move us towards a more enlightened way of living? In 1869, against this backdrop, the secular urge to make a fetish of the scientific method and thereby undermine the Christian faith caused Pope Pius IX to call the bishops of the world to Rome for what we now call the First Vatican Council. The Pope asked the bishops to articulate for the world and for the church the proper relationship between God, reason, revelation, and faith. Now, it's important to recognize that, just as there are some in the secular world who would deny any role to faith or revelation, there are some Christian believers, called pietists, who hold that knowledge of God and faith can only come from outside of reason. The fathers of the First Vatican Council rejected both approaches, however. Instead, following the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas, they affirmed that reason and faith complement each other by cooperatively revealing truth to men, including knowledge of divine truth. Thus, in the conciliar document, Dei Filius, the Church said, Holy Mother Church holds and teaches that God, the beginning and end of all things may be certainly known by the natural light of human reason. And here they are quoting Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that have been made. The church says that we can know that God exists through observation of the world by natural reason. She does not, however, endorse any particular philosophical argument for the existence of God, such as those put forth by Aquinas or others, just like she doesn't pin any article of faith on a reading of any particular scriptural passage. Rather, the Church embraces truth itself and leaves to theologians and philosophers to grapple with how a particular truth may be justified by reason or by revelation, One of the reasons that she does this is because the church wants to avoid implying that there is a complete dichotomy between reason and faith. There are not strictly speaking some truths that are known only by faith and some that are known only by reason. In trying to explain the relationship of reason and faith, some have suggested the image of a mountain. Climbing up one side is likened to the use of reason. The pinnacle of the summit is the singular knowledge, known by reason alone, that there is a God who created all things, the uncreated creator of the philosophers. Then one descends down the other side of the mountain by faith, coming to knowledge of revealed truths, such as the Trinity and the Incarnation, that are inaccessible to reason alone. But this image, although it can be valuable in some respects, sure changes the interconnection of faith and reason. Rather, the image we might invoke is that of two horses pulling the same cart. The cart is kept moving forward in a straight line by the equal tension produced by the horse on the right and the horse on the left. Seen in this way, the dichotomy between faith and reason is lessened. Yes, we know by the light of reason alone that God exists. But it is a grace that God puts into our minds that moves us to seek Out the ultimate reason for the existence of the universe. And yes, it is only because of the deposit of faith that man can know such sublime mysteries as the Trinity or the Incarnation. But it is only because this revelation is then understood and contextualized by the power of our reason that we can have a living and dynamic faith in what it is that is revealed to us. So instead of science and faith, or reason and revelation, perhaps we could speak of first revelation and then second revelation. First revelation is God's very creation, a world that by its own beauty, mystery, and order reveals the hand of a creator. And then second revelation is the deposit of faith contained in scripture and tradition that instructs us in the creator's plan for us. We can then say this. First revelation makes second revelation credible, and second revelation makes the first revelation meaningful. Pope Benedict often talked about the enormous significance of the incorporation of Greek philosophy into Christianity in the early centuries of the Church. He called it providential, this meeting of Athens and Jerusalem. Because it was through the structure and rigor that philosophy gave to the gospel that genuine theology was born, a theology that is characterized as faith-seeking understanding, a theology that equipped Christianity to survive many centuries of challenges, changes, and conflicts. All of this bears on the story of the Magi in the Gospel reading today. The Magi were astronomers, the scientific minds of their time. But there was enough room in their scientific outlook that when they saw a strange star in the heavens, they were immediately drawn to seek a deeper understanding of it, recognizing that it was not just some astrological anomaly. It was, in fact, a sign from God. And so they saw and responded to its divine significance. But notice that in following this star, they only got as far as Israel, not to Jerusalem, or not to the Jesus himself because Israel was the guardian of God's revelation in that time, the people through whom the Messiah would come and save all the nations of the earth. Thus, it was only by consulting the religious leaders of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes, that the Magi could finally pinpoint that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Only the Jewish people had that data point, which came only from divine revelation. And of course, when the Magi do finally find Jesus, They don't seek to analyze him, dissect him, or perform some kind of scientific experiment on him. Instead, we are told they're simply overjoyed. They gave the infant Jesus gifts as a way of establishing their personal relationship with him, just as we do with people whom we have loving relationships. They did him homage, just as the shepherds had. Their faith and their reason worked in tandem. By their reason, they saw the star, but by the promptings of faith, they sought out what the star signified. In doing so, the wise men submitted themselves to the biblical revelation of God through the Jews in the Old Covenant. Because of their docility in this respect, they could finally arrive in Bethlehem and prostrate themselves before the most unlikely incarnation of God, an infant swaddled in a manger. This is why, later in the temple, the prophet Simeon would say of the child Jesus that he was a light to the nations and the glory of his people Israel. In doing so, he echoes Isaiah about the Messiah, nations shall walk in his light. Jesus Christ would draw all things to himself, Jew and Gentile, reason and faith, east and west, magi and sheepherder. In commemorating the visit of the Magi, we must also not forget the important role that the Jews played. For century upon century, this tiny people in an obscure part of the world were the sanctuaries of God's revelation, which role did not end even with the coming of Christ, because as the Apostle Paul says in the second reading, the mystery of revelation was made known to him, a Jew, so that the Gentiles could become co-heirs to Christ." The first apostles and the disciples were Jewish. Because only the Jews, the holders of this first covenant, could make the revelation of Christ credible to the non-Jews. In the new covenant, God continues to guard his revelation in his chosen people. Not in the people of Israel, but in the Church of Christ formed by baptism. This is what our Holy Father, Pope Francis, said once in a homily. Wanting to live with Jesus without the Church... Trying to follow Jesus outside of the church, loving Jesus without the church, is an absurd dichotomy. Because only the church can keep in tension this exquisite symphony of faith and reason. Left on our own, we inevitably lose the harmony. God, in his wisdom, thus gives us Holy Mother Church as a gentle guiding hand and a tender guardian of our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.